down Wisconsin, and this game is underway with a bang. This is where the lacrosse area gathers to talk Wisconsin sports. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Join in by phone or text at 796-2558. Now, here's Grant Bills. So when I was a kid, I used to watch SportsCenter all the time. This was kind of before social media got huge, so I would watch SportsCenter, I'd get my highlights, I'd see the scores. And now the way we consume sports has changed. We see highlights as they happen on our phone. We see scores and results and stats on our phone as they happen because we're always on Twitter, we're playing fantasy sports. So I don't really watch that much SportsCenter anymore, but I do like Scott Van Pelt. He does SportsCenter at night, the late night show. And he oftentimes starts his show with the best thing I saw today. That's the name of the segment. I want to say, show you the coolest thing, the craziest thing, the best thing I saw today. That's how he usually starts his show at night. Well, I want to do this a little differently. I want to start today's show with the dumbest thing that I saw today. And to be fair, I, I saw it yesterday. So it's a, it's a little bit of a lie. But the dumbest thing that I have seen in the last 24 hours. And it was what we talked about to end the show yesterday, really, really briefly. And that was Cardinals owner Bill DeWitt saying something hilariously stupid and hilariously wrong. I'll share the quote with you now if you haven't heard it. He was asked about the profits and the the money side, the financial side of his baseball team and of Major League Baseball. His words, the industry isn't very profitable, to be quite honest. And I think they understand that. But they think, you know, the owners are hiding profits. And I know there's been a little bit of distrust there. That's the words. Yesterday, I believe it was on 590 The Fan in St. Louis. Cardinals owner saying, yeah, we actually, you know what? We really don't make that much owning a baseball team. We really don't make it. Well, Bill, maybe you should have got into radio. If if owning a team isn't so profitable, maybe you should be a radio host. Because the money here is great. I'm so glad I don't own a baseball team. This is great news to me. This is the Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. My name is Grant Bills. I appreciate you hanging out. We're going to cover a bunch of different topics today. We're going to start with baseball. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we're going to go pack in time. We've been doing it once a week where we watch an old Packer game. We've watched games from 2014, from 2016, from 2019. We went back to 1997 to rewatch and and talk about the Super Bowl two weeks ago. So today, we're going to go back to one of my favorite seasons, my favorite Packers teams I've ever seen, and that was in 2014. And I will go to my grave. Well, okay, I won't go to my grave. But if I died today, let's put it that way. If I died today, I think this was one of the best Packer teams I've ever seen. And this game, Week 13 from 2014 against the New England Patriots, I think it's the best matchup I have seen the Green Bay Packers in, at least in the regular season, probably for my entire life. My life as a sports fan. An incredible game. We're going to talk about that. Uh, and I'll share with you some of my big takeaways. Something, some things we can learn about football and about the Packers moving forward. We're going to talk about that. And you know what? We're even going to get to NASCAR right before 6 o'clock. I'll explain to you my NASCAR fandom and some big news today. Some surprising news that NASCAR made. So we'll cover all that. As always, your comments and uh, conversation is welcome. 608-796-2558. That's the five-star telecom talk and text line. But like I said, I want to start today with the dumbest thing I saw today, and it was yesterday, so I'm cheating a little bit. The quote from St. Louis Cardinals owner Bill DeWitt. The industry just isn't very profitable, to be quite honest, and I think they understand that. But they think, you know, the owners are hiding profits, and you know there's been a little bit of distrust there, end quote. Well, yeah, I think there is some distrust because baseball owners say stupid stuff like this all the time. 
I don't know why I'd listen to Bill DeWitt and anything he has to say after after this quote. But let's get into it. Let's talk about the words of, of Bill DeWitt. There's a huge conflict going on right now in Major League Baseball between the league itself and the Players Association, the players and their agents. The MLB versus the MLBPA. It's a conflict going on with the ultimate goal of reaching labor peace and getting back to the field to play games. And in times of conflict, presentation is everything. And I want to put Bill DeWitt's comments and the situation that baseball is currently in, I want to put it in context by comparing it to what's going on in our country right now. And I'm not going to get political. That's not, that's not what I want to do. I have zero interest in that. But I want to use what's going on right now as an example about how presentation means everything. This might surprise you. So let's look at what's going on in our country right now. We have all these, these groups at play. We have the Black Lives Matter contingent, the protesters, right? And unlike six years ago in 2014, I actually think the white majority is siding with the Black Lives Matter movement. They were viewed as a little bit more radical in 2014, so that's the uh, the sign of, of changing times. But we have Black Lives Matter. We have the white majority, which in most cases are, are on the same side right now. You have Donald Trump and our government. And I guess you can include Antifa because Trump, that's a big deal right now. So we have all these groups at play, and they're all looking for... Peace. They're looking for a compromise, looking for a solution. Looking for a solution, looking for balance. So all parties can be happy. Now, Trump has had a rough PR week. He's had a rough week when it comes to presentation. You had the story of him going into the bunker, and then he's like, well, I was just checking it out. And then, and then who was it? Uh, Attorney General Barr came out and said, or I don't know if Barr is the Attorney General, but uh, Barr came out and said, well, actually, no, we did put him in the bunker, and that made Trump look a, a little bit bad. And then you had him, like, his contingent tear-gassing the protesters so we could do this weird photo op in front of a church with a Bible. Like, it's been a bad PR week for Donald Trump. It's not about politics. It's just Trump has misstepped in the way he's presented his presidency in the last two weeks. He's made a lot of people upset. But you know how I can tell presentation is everything? Because in 2014, in Ferguson, when the Ferguson protests were going on, You know, President Barack Obama took a lot of the same actions that Trump is taking. And he said a lot of the same things that Trump is saying now. But he he presented it better. He put a better spin on it. So I I went back and I reread some of the articles from 2014. This is a quote. President Barack Obama said he has, quote, no sympathy at all for destroying your own communities. Speaking to the protesters in Ferguson in 2014. He deployed 1,500 additional National Guard troops and extra law enforcement officers to Ferguson to try to stop the looting, to stop the fires and the destruction that was going on. President Barack Obama said, I have no sympathy for it. None. Which is basically what Donald Trump has said as well, right? Very similar. Deploy extra bodies, whether it's law enforcement or National Guard, and take a very hard stance. We're going to have law and order. I have no sympathy for people who are destroying buildings and businesses and ravaging this community. Very similar. But Trump has had a rough go because he hasn't put as good of a spin on it. Obama in 2014 said, and this quote jumped out to me too, he said, the frustrations that we've seen are not just about a particular incident. They have deep roots in many communities of color that have a sense that our laws are not always being enforced uniformly or fairly, right? He's putting it into context. He's saying, look, I don't want people destroying their communities. I'm going to bring extra bodies, extra law enforcement in to help enforce law and order. But I understand where you guys are coming from. President Obama put a a good spin on it. Donald Trump, not so much. Very similar actions, very similar stance, 
but very different presentation. And therefore, we remember Barack Obama in a more positive light, at least 2014, in comparison to Donald Trump. Now, why do I share that with you? Because Bill DeWitt is doing what he needs to do. He's doing what any MLB owner would do right now. Protect his profits, keep his business operating in the black rather than the red, at least as much as possible, and protect his business. I don't fault him for that. And he's siding with his fellow owners who don't want to lose millions and millions and millions of dollars to the players in the case of a shortened season, especially a shortened season with no fans. I don't blame Bill DeWitt for doing what he's doing, just like I didn't blame Obama for bringing in extra law enforcement and National Guard, and I don't really fault Donald Trump for it either. The problem with Donald Trump, and right now Bill DeWitt in comparison to what Obama did in 2014, is that they're getting the PR all wrong. The presentation is all wrong. No one discounts the lack of income for owners. I don't think anybody discounts that. We all realize that if they play games without fans, the owners are going to lose some money. Everybody understands that. I don't want any business to go under. I don't want anybody to lose some of their paycheck. Nobody's discounting the struggle and the problems that the owners will face in making ends meet. No one discounts that. But Bill, Bill DeWitt, the Cardinals owner, you got to spin it better than this. Like, like, there's a PR battle going on in essentially a court of public opinion. The owners and the players. And both sides want the fans to side with them. Both are protecting their own. Players are protecting their paychecks and their safety. The owners are protecting the viability of their business and their money. I understand both sides. But who, who are we going to side with? Who are we going to pick? I understand where Bill Lewis is coming from. But dude, you got to spin it a little bit better than this. You can't, you can't outright lie. If you Google... MLB franchise values. It takes like two seconds. This is so this is so easy to access. It's on Forbes. This is the first result that came up. All the team's current values, the one-year value change, and the revenue that's brought in. In the case of the St. Louis Cardinals, the team is currently worth $2.2 billion. They brought in $383 million of revenue last year alone. $383 million. To say that that's not a profitable business or isn't as profitable as everyone thinks, is just a straight-up lie. Bill DeWitt, I'm speaking to the Cardinals owner here, no one discounts the financial struggle that you and all the other MLB owners are going to have to endure the next year, maybe more. No one's discounting that. But when you go and lie right to our faces, why Why should we take your side? Why should we side with you? Think of it, think of it this way. Bill DeWitt has lost all credibility in my eyes. Think of it this way. If you were... Sitting in class, you're sitting in a lecture at UW Lacrosse or Viterbo or Western Tech. You're sitting in class and the professor says something that you don't agree with. Maybe it's a comment about politics or about religion, something about belief or value and opinion. If a professor says something that I don't agree with, I don't find them to not be credible. I don't find them to be stupid or uneducated. I just disagree. That's fine. I can still take the class. I can still learn something and I can still come out of that class smarter than when I came in. But if the professor starts saying something that's just plain wrong, the professor starts saying four plus four is 10 and the earth is flat. Well, that's not a that's not a matter of belief or value or opinion. That's just straight wrong. And that professor, in your eyes, is a student who's paying money to to learn and to take that class and be educated. You're not going to listen to a damn word that professor says. You're going to want your money back. It's the same with Bill DeWitt. If Bill DeWitt says, you know what? I think the owners are getting the short end of the stick here. We have to protect our business as well. I don't want to go into debt. What about me? If he said that, I would have said, well, you have millions and millions of dollars, but I don't disagree with what you said. What you said isn't wrong. Bill DeWitch has straight up lied. 
He said the industry isn't profitable. BS! Even the league's least valuable franchises, the lowest of the low, 28, 29, 30, Tampa Bay, Kansas City, Miami, all of those teams, except the Miami Marlins, are worth more than a billion dollars. The Miami Marlins are worth $980 million and still brought in $220 million of revenue last year. Even the team that no one cares about is bringing in money hand over fist. To say that these businesses and the ownership of MLB franchises, to say it's not a profitable business, get out of here. Why should we listen to anything you say? All your credibility, gone, right out the window. It's one thing to say something I disagree with. That's fine. Americans need to get better at that. Just agreeing to disagree. It's fine. We can do it. But to say something that's just not factual, to say something that's just flat wrong, well, now I don't have to listen to what you say, and I don't care to listen to what you say. Good day for the owner, or for the players yesterday, rather. Good day for the players. When the owners start going on radio shows and just lying to everyone. Straight up, obviously lying. Good day for the players. When we come back, I want to talk about football. I want to talk about the Green Bay Packers. Something positive. Something that doesn't frustrate me. The last couple of Wednesdays, we've been going pack in time. It's a little play on words. It's corny. I don't even like it that much, but it's the best we have. If you got a better idea to name the segment, go ahead. 608-796-2558. Shoot me a text on the five-star telecom talking text line. We are going to go back to one of my favorite Packers teams. I think one of the best Packers teams and the best games of my adult life as a sports fan. Coming up next, we'll go pack in time. A lot more of the Wisco Sports Show to come. Stick around. The Wisco Sports Show rolls on. My name is Grant Bills. I'm your host. Hope you're having a great evening. You can follow me on Twitter at KeystrokerGrant so you can see what I'm whining and complaining about when I'm not on the air. You can also... Follow us all at WKTY. Me, Dave, Hunter, the whole cast and crew. Dave, uh, Dave had Bill Michaels on this morning. Bill's doing his cigar dinner at uh, Shenanigans out on French Island tonight. I don't know what time that starts. I didn't get an invite. Maybe my maybe my ticket got lost in the mail. I have to ask Bill about that. Uh, ne- either next time I talk to Radio Joe or, or, or next time I have Bill on the show. If you're headed out, enjoy. Here's some good stories, some good talk from uh, from Bill Michaels. I- Every Wednesday, the last couple of weeks, we've been going packing time, and we've been talking about throwback old Packer games, and I think it's been really, really fun. Today, we're talking about one of my favorite teams, one of my favorite seasons, and one one of my favorite games. If I were to die today, I think this might be the best matchup I've ever seen the Packers play in the regular season. We're talking about 2014, week 13, between the Patriots and the Packers, and really the first time that Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers matched up. Because if you remember in 2010, Matt Flynn played that game, and Pert near won. He's close, right? He didn't know how to run the two-minute drill. Otherwise, the Packers might have won in Foxborough. But let's set the scene just a little bit. Going into this game, Patriots 9-2, and Packers 8-3. and Both teams got off to slow starts, and both teams got hot. And if you remember, after the first couple of games, Aaron Rodgers made this proclamation, just to remind Packers fans, hey, we're okay. Five letters here. Just for everybody out there in Packerland and yourself today. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. The Packers started. We're going to be okay. The Packers started this season losing to the Seahawks, then barely beating the Jets at home, and then losing to the Lions. So they're one and two. They're one and two. People are freaking out. And then Aaron Rodgers makes that proclamation. The Patriots, very similar to start the season, lose to the Dolphins. They barely beat the Raiders. They they beat up on the Minnesota Vikings, but who doesn't? And then in week four, they get waxed by the Kansas City Chiefs at Arrowhead. They lose 41-14. So they start 2-2, two and two, pretty underwhelming. 
But then both teams catch absolute fire. The Patriots starting in week five, the Packers starting in week four. The Patriots went 7-0 and after week five, averaging 40 points a game. Packers went 7-1 and after week four, averaging 38 points a game. Both teams were red hot and both teams were really, really good. Patriots were plus eight in the turnover margin. Packers plus 13. These teams and these quarterbacks are hot. Two of the best ever quarterbacks matching up. It was a 315 game on CBS. God, it was beautiful. Week 13, the weekend after Thanksgiving. It's just getting serious in football weather. Let's talk about this game. Let's go pack in time. I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. So I remember this game, this specific game, really, really well. It was a Sunday after Thanksgiving. I went deer hunting in the morning. And then I had, I think it was the first, the one-year birthday party of my niece. So we had a birthday party for a one-year-old we had to go to. So we were watching with some family and friends. We're all huddled around a TV in the living room, right? I remember this game and this day very, very specifically. And games like this are really, really special. It was at Lambeau Field. It was 3.30, and it was a late-in-the-season game. So it got dark early, and Lambeau was... Hopping. The atmosphere was awesome. And this game features, I I think, one of the coolest jersey combos in the NFL when you get the Packers green and golds and then the Patriots white, blue, and red. It just looks beautiful. It's very similar to when the Packers wear their green and golds and the Cowboys wear their, their, I guess it would be their home whites with the silver pants. It's just a beautiful jersey combination. A very fun, pleasing football game to watch on the eye. And it was a little sad re-watching this game because as good as this game was... I can't help but think about the end of the season when the Packers should have made the Super Bowl and ended up letting it slip away in the final couple of minutes in Seattle. That was the recurring theme throughout this whole game when I was watching. How did this team not win a Super Bowl? Like, that's the question. How did they at least not go to the Super Bowl? This team was so, so good. They had the talent, both on offense and on defense, young players, veterans. They had the juice. They had the momentum. They even had a catchy Aaron Rodgers slogan. Like, that's a special season. I can't believe this team didn't make the Super Bowl, and it's still disappointing to think about. That was my recurring theme throughout the whole time. I'm like, how did this team not make a Super Bowl? So the Packers ended up winning this game, 26-21, and they got off to a great start. They led 13 to nothing at the end of the first quarter. They settled for a lot of field goals over the course of this game. The Packers actually went 0-4 for in the red zone, converting to touchdowns. So they kicked a lot of field goals. And I remember when I'm watching the broadcast, it's coming back to me, and, and it's such a cliche, and it's maybe why CBS moved on from Sims and went to Romo. Because Sims a couple of times points out, you're playing Tom Brady and the Patriots. You can't settle for field goals. And I'm like, yeah, we know. We know. You get in the red zone, you got to score touchdowns. Grass is green. Water is wet. They did go 0 for 4 in the red zone. That number's a little skewed. Devontae Adams drops a, a touchdown right on the goal line. The Packers scored a touchdown from out. They scored two from outside the red zone. So that statistic isn't everything, but it shows that the Patriots defense in the red zone really, really stiffened up and forced the Packers to kick field goals. This game actually had a very similar feel to to some games the Packers played in 2019 where they jumped out to an early lead and they held on. And in this game, the defense ultimately sealed the deal with the Patriots trying to drive to go ahead and Mike Neal and Mike Daniels meet it, Tom Brady, and get that third down sack to force a field goal, which Kostowski missed, and then the rest was history. That's how this game went. Packers win 26-21. Let's start with the offense. And actually, let's only talk about the offense because there's so many interesting little tidbits in this game to chew on. I think this game and this season featured the best Packers O-line this decade. Bakhtiari, Sitton, Lindsley, who was a rookie at the time, TJ Lang, and Brian Bulaga. 
I think this offensive line was just as good and went toe-to-toe with the Dallas offensive line, which was incredible, and that was the season DeMarco Murray went off, and the Packers and the Cowboys actually met in the playoffs, two really, really good offensive lines, and they all stayed healthy. They also had a great receiving core, Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, Devontae Adams, who was a rookie, and then Jared Boykin, who we thought was going to be something it didn't turn out to be. And they had reliable options, options that Rodgers could trust at tight end. Even if they weren't elite, they had Andrew Corliss, they had Richard Rodgers, they had options. They had options to play with. Let's start with the run game. Mike McCarthy's run game. This game is an amazing example of Mike McCarthy's run game in a nutshell. It's a perfect example because it always felt clunky and it always felt forced. Mike McCarthy, you'd come into a game and they'd run, 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 run. And then almost a, a switch would flip in Mike McCarthy's head where, where he's like, all right, we, we did that. We checked that box off. All right, now let's actually, let's actually just throw the ball everywhere. Even if the running was, even if the running game was working, which it was in this game, this stat line will show you exactly how Mike McCarthy handles the run game. This is the first drive, play by play. Ready? Packers get the ball. This is how it goes. Pass to Eddie Lacy, twelve yards. Eddie Lacy run thirteen yards. Eddie Lacy run twenty four yards. Eddie Lacy run two yards. Incomplete pass. Incomplete pass. Hand off to Cobb for two yards. Lacy run no gain. Incomplete pass. Field goal. That's how the first possession went. Forty one of Eddie Lacy's ninety eight total yards came on that first drive in the first three minutes and 46 seconds of the game. And after that, Mike McCarthy's like, all right, we satisfied that requirement for the game. Let's go to town. And very predictably, two series later, Eddie Lacy was on the bench, and it was James Stark's turn. They didn't rotate in and out, play by play. It always went series by series, and that's the way Mike McCarthy handled the run game. Predictable, and even if Eddie Lacy was cranking off big runs, it didn't feel like Mike McCarthy would build on that success. The running game wouldn't evolve as the game went on. Didn't get better and better. It just it just kind of was. And even when they were running the ball well, Mike McCarthy really didn't translate that into more offensive success. Didn't really translate it into an evolving offense over the course of the game. Very predictable. That's why I think Matt LaFleur is a step, step up, at least in the running game, to Mike McCarthy. Now, this is the biggest thing that jumped out to me in this game, and it, it was because of Jordy Nelson. Two weeks ago, when we rewatched and talked about Super Bowl thirty one. The Leroy Butler, Brett Favre, Reggie White Super Bowl in the late 90s. I used that game as an explanation and as evidence of why you need a deep threat. Because in that game, conveniently also against the Patriots, like the game we're talking about now, the Patriots had great linebackers, really solid tackling linebackers. And they had a great defensive line. So although the Packers tried to run the ball and tried to to use that short and intermediate passing game, the Patriots were just such good tacklers, they weren't really getting anywhere. So the scores, and the big plays in Super Bowl 31 were to Andre Risen, big bomb touchdown, to Antonio Freeman, big bomb touchdown. And the offense is actually pretty mediocre outside of those few big plays. Those deep, those deep threats were vital to winning that Super Bowl. It was clear to me in this game, too, a deep threat was vital to the Packers beating the Patriots in 2014. I've talked a lot this offseason, last couple months, about running backs and tight ends and Matt LaFleur's system, and I think it'll work. I wanted them to take another running back. Hi, they did in A.J. Dillon. I should be thrilled. And I think the running attack will be really, really good, and I think they'll utilize both their tight ends and their running backs, and I think it'll be good and fun to watch, and, and, and I think it'll be effective. But, but, you need a deep threat. You need somebody who can take the top off the defense. And I'm not just saying that to say it, because it is a cliche. You see it, it's evident. In Super Bowl 31, how important the deep threats were, and it was important in this game as well. The 97 Pats were great up front, but the 2014 Pats were great in the secondary. Darrell Rivas, Brandon Browner, Patrick Chung, 
Devin McCourty. Didn't even mention Malcolm Butler, who was who had not really burst onto the scene yet, not until the Super Bowl, which should have been against the Packers, was against the Seahawks. The Packers needed to get easy scores this game because they were struggling in the red zone. They were 0 for 4. Jordy Nelson, their best receiver, had two catches. Two. That's it. Darrell Rivas followed him the whole game and played phenomenal. But Darrell Rivas was slamming his helmet on the ground going into halftime. You know why? Because Jordy Nelson had one big catch, a touchdown for 45 yards, that made every other play in the first half, all of Darrell Rivas' great pass deflections and his great pass breakups and his great coverage, that one long touchdown of 45 yards, one of only two Jordy Nelson catches, erased all of that excellent coverage by Darrell Rivas. And he knew it. He knew it. He played great, but he gave up one play that he couldn't give up, and that's why he was slamming his helmet before halftime. Because here's the thing. Passing here and there and slowly dinking and dunking and make your way down the field, that's great. Until you play a defensive front like the Patriots in 97, or a defensive backfield like the Patriots in 2014. Completions are going to be difficult to come by. Jordy Nelson, who has had a, a, had a stronger connection with Aaron Rodgers than I've ever seen with a wide receiver and a quarterback. He had two catches. He could manage two, and they both came on the save drive with, in, in about a minute of, of themselves, of each other. But that long touchdown, that was basically a free score for the Packers. You try to dink and dunk your way around the field, but that one deep threat that Jordy Nelson provided, even against prime Darrell Rivas, Rivas Island, completely changed the flow of the game. Ultimately ended up being the difference. And three quarters of excellent coverage, really more than three quarters, almost an entire game of excellent coverage by Darrell Rivas was basically negated by that one long touchdown. You need a deep threat. I'm not sure if the Packers have that guy, at least right now, going into 2019-2020. I want to continue to talk about the wide receiving core, the Packers' weapons, both in 2014 and now. As we go back in time, we're talking about Week 13, Packers-Patriots 2014. We'll continue this conversation next year on the Wisco Sports Show. Leading two for the first. Roger. Remember when Lambeau Field used to get that loud? 2014, the last real title run, the last real contending Packers team there was. Took all the way until 2019 for it to get that loud again. Wisco Sports Show, you're listening to WKTY. My name is Grant Bills. We're talking about the Week 13 matchup between the Packers and the Patriots. Six years ago now, isn't that hard to believe? Packers ended up winning this game 26-21 in one of the most evenly matched matchups between two of the greatest quarterbacks I, I've ever seen this game. I still go back and watch highlights of this game to this day. I mean, I rewatched the entire thing this morning. Both teams were red hot. They were playing well. Both quarterbacks playing at an MVP level, and they matched up in prime time at Lambeau Field. Like it, it could not have been written any better. Couldn't have been set up any better. When watching these old games, I, I keep finding myself gravitating towards the wide receivers. That's all, that's all I can pay attention to. And I don't know. Maybe it's because there's such a hot topic the last year. And maybe it's because the offense is so different between McCarthy and, and, and Matt LaFleur. I mean, after all, the offense is designed completely differently under Mike McCarthy. Remember, the Packers won a Super Bowl in 2010 with a wide receiving core that featured Jordy Nelson, James Jones, Greg Jennings, Donald Driver. They had Jermichael Finley coming back. That, that group of weapons is incredible. And they drafted a wide receiver in the second round, Randall Cobb, the next year. Anyway. Because wide receivers for Mike McCarthy and his offense were a priority. 
Now under Matt LaFleur, it's about the running backs and the tight ends. It's completely differently. So it it makes sense when I go back and watch these old Packer games that I find myself just kind of just in awe of the wide receivers that this team used to have and the weapons Aaron Rodgers used to throw to. I said last year that the Packers could win a Super Bowl with only Devontae Adams as their elite wide receiver. I said, look, you have Aaron Jones, you have Aaron Rodgers, pretty good defense, a good offensive line. One elite wide receiver should be able to get the job done. That's what I believe. Should be able to scheme up a couple plays here and there. You should be able to go to Devontae Adams on third down when you need it. You should be able to win with Devontae Adams and company. Now, I I think it would have taken Aaron Rodgers playing at an MVP level and a little bit of an overproduction by the defense, a little uh, an overperformance from the defense, but it could have been done nonetheless. Now, I still believe that, but the more I watch these old games, it's really showing me the luxury of having multiple weapons, multiple elite wide receivers. And in this game, I, I talked about the deep threat that was Jordy Nelson in 2014. I mean, he was catching 60, 70 yard bombs every week taking the top off a defense routinely. And we've talked about the importance of that. You need the ability to score quickly because if you're playing an elite defense, you can't always dink and dunk your way down the field, you know, 10, 12 plays at a time. You just can't do it. There's too much that can go wrong. You can fumble. You can get a penalty. You can take a sack. You can turn the ball over. It's just really hard. Every once in a while, you need a quick score. You need a freebie. And Jordy Nelson was really, really good at that. But it isn't just about Jordy Nelson. It's about the entire wide receiving core. Devontae Adams is tremendous, tremendous this game. This is his bust-out game as a rookie after he was drafted in the second round uh, the, the spring earlier, just months earlier than this game. He had a tremendous game, and he busted out, and it, it's not a coincidence. Put yourself in the shoes of Mike McCarthy and look at this New England defense. Think of how you might strategize, how you might try to attack it. You're going up against prime Darrell Revis, Revis Island, Brandon Browner, And then there's also Logan Ryan and Alfonso Denard, who rotated between the third and the fourth cornerback spot. Pretty obvious who you should attack, right? Who you should target. You're obviously not going to go after Revis and Brandon Browning. You're going to go after Logan Ryan or Alfonso Denard, who I forgot about until I rewatched this game. You want to target Ryan and Denard, but how? Right? How are you going to do that? Well, Darrell Revis was blanketing Jordy Nelson this whole game to the point where Jordy Nelson was targeted six times, only had two catches. Now, one was a long touchdown and was the most important play of the game but still only had two catches. Randall Cobb was a little bit better. He had seven receptions on 11 targets. But by and large, Darrell Revis was with Jordy Nelson and Brandon Browner was with Randall Cobb. That left Devontae Adams in a favorable matchup with Logan Ryan or Alfonso Denard. Having two or three, even better, elite wide receivers gives the offense flexibility to play matchups, to find a weak spot in the defense and exploit it. And in this game... It even went past Devontae Adams. They used Randall Cobb the same way. They lined Cobb up in the backfield, and he had a 33-yard gain because he was matched up on Rob Ninkovich, a linebacker. Having multiple weapons, weapons that you can move around and line up in multiple places, gives a play caller and a quarterback flexibility. said, okay, we want to go after that guy. Well, we can't use Jordan Nelson, can't use Randall Cobb, but we can use Devontae Adams. Having multiple weapons gives an offense flexibility, and I don't know if that's something the Packers have going into 2020. I'm hesitant that they have a, a deep threat. I don't know if they do. Fingers crossed that Mar- Marquez Valdez-Scantling can be that guy. I, I don't even know if, if they have the flexibility to have three great wide receivers to try to play matchups like Mike McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers used to do every single game. So you have Devontae Adams. He's your number one. He's your Jordy Nelson comp in the situation. 
Alan Lazard is your number two. Now, I'd rather have prime Randall Cobb than current Alan Lazard, but maybe he takes a step this year. I like that one-two punch. It could be a lot worse between Devontae Adams and Alan Lazard, assuming they both stay healthy, which is a big fingers crossed, knock on wood. But after Adams and Lazard, who? Because if you want to target a team's number three corner or you want to try to get a wide receiver matchup on a linebacker, you need a third option. You need a consistent third option. And in this game, Devontae Adams was consistent. He was good. Now, he made some mistakes. He made some rookie mistakes. He dropped the touchdown that would have sealed the game. He misstepped around the sideline on what should have been another touchdown. But he hauled in just about everything else that came his way. And his route running was superb. His route running was superb. That was clear. Going back at this game, I mean, you could see his promise as a route runner. He had to tune up a couple other things. His hands weren't as good as they are now. And his footwork along the sidelines and in the end zone wasn't as good as they are now. But his route running was there. And that was enough to expose Logan Ryan and Alfonso Denard and whoever else they put on him because Brandon Browner and Darrell Rivas were locked up on Cobb and Nelson. You need a third option. So in 2020, they're going to have Adams and Lazard. There's your one, two. Who's your three? Who's your three? It could be Equinemius St. Brown. It could be Marquez Valdez-Scantling. It could be Devin Funches, Jake Kumaro. I don't care, but it needs to be one of them. What, you just, just need one. You need one to step up. Now, ultimately, you'd like two or three because that gives you even further flexibility and protects you against injury, but I'm not going to be picky. One. You need one ride receiver. Now, at the beginning of the season, I'd probably put my money on Devin Funches just because he's a veteran. But by the end of the season, I wouldn't be surprised if either EQ or MVS becomes that number third option. One of those guys becomes that number third option. Because just having a third solid wide receiver, you don't need to be all pro. don't need to be a pro bowler. You can be solid and trustworthy and consistent. That gives Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur so much more flexibility when trying to decide how to attack a defense. When you sit down in meetings and you say, okay, man, we're going up against the Bears second year. They're really, really good. They're really, really, really good. Kyle Fuller is, is going to do good work against Devontae Adams. All right? But what about the two in the number three corner? How can we attack them? Well, if Devontae Adams is your only good wide receiver, you can't attack the number two in the number three cornerback. If the Packers want to be flexible and they want to be efficient and, 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 and flexible in the running game or the passing game, excuse me, you need to have more than two options. It can't just be Lazard and Adams. You need a third guy. I don't know who I'd bet on right now. I, I really like the idea of Valdez Scantling becoming that guy. We'll see. I think early on, Funches is a solid bet just because he's a veteran. He's been around. I really like Okunamiya St. Brown. I think he's I think he's dope. I think he's a sick player. I, I don't know how good he is. I really want him to be good. I really like DJ Wilson on the Bucks too. I think he's sick. That doesn't mean he's a, a great player. I feel the same way about EQ. I really, really hope he's good. I think that would be really cool. To basically be forgotten about for a year and come back. I just think he, I think he's got swag. I think he's dope. I think he's a cool player. I, I hope he becomes that guy. But I also really love the idea of MVS or Funches or even Kumaro becoming that guy. Kumaro last year, when given opportunities, came through by and large. Not going to expect him to be a number two wide receiver, but all right, a solid number three. I can see it. I can see it. Packers need one more threat to emerge this year. Similarly to how Devontae Adams emerged in that week 13 game between the Packers and the Patriots in 2014. And he did it again in the playoffs, in the division round against the Cowboys. They did a pretty good job figuring out Jordy Nelson and Randall Cobb, but they couldn't figure out Devontae Adams. If you have three solid wide receivers, you, you put the, the opposition in a tough spot. You put the defensive coordinator and the secondary in a tough spot because you can only cover so many guys. Unless you're the Chargers 
or the Ravens with just a stacked secondary, which Chargers and the Ravens, Packers don't have to play those teams this year. Wouldn't see them until the Super Bowl. If you have three solid options, man, the, the, the world is your oyster as a play caller, as a quarterback, and as an offense. I, I want to change gears uh, to NASCAR. You like that? We're going to change gears. I want to talk about NASCAR coming up in a few minutes because they made a really, really surprising announcement today. We'll talk about that, something I did not see coming, but something that Dave and I talked about on the morning show this morning, and, and I want to share with you Dave's comments if you missed it, because I think Dave actually said it better better than I could. And I want to share with you his comments and, and what happened in the world of NASCAR, the world of racing. We'll wrap up the Wisco Sports Show coming up next. Final segment of the Wisco Sports Show. You're listening to WKTY. My name is Graham Bills. We've covered a lot of ground today between the Packers and what's what's going on in baseball, which is a never-ending, just really hilarious story. It's gotten to the point where it's hilarious. We've covered a lot, and if you want to check out what you missed, just go to WKTYsports.com or download our mobile app. You can find the podcast right there. It'll go up just after uh, after 6 o'clock. We talk a lot about sports on this show, even sometimes sports that aren't Wisconsin sports. We really covered all. We even talked about Lance Armstrong a couple times in the last week. Bruce Lee, right? We've, we've covered it all. I, I think I can say with certainty that we've never talked about NASCAR on this show. At least I don't think. We've even talked about wrestling. But I don't think we've ever talked about NASCAR. Now, I'm trying to get into NASCAR like a little bit just to pass the time. I'm a casual fan. I watch the Daytona 500, and I cheer for Denny Hamlin. My dad used to work for FedEx, so like we just we just kind of adopted Denny Hamlin, even though I, I didn't really watch much NASCAR. I watch the Daytona 500 every year because it's, it's what you do, right? You watch the Masters, even if you're not a golf fan. It's what you do. I was working late two weeks ago. I think it would have been two Wednesdays ago during the race, and I watched the last 20 laps, and it was exciting. I think it was at Charlotte. Chase Elliott won. He led like the last 20 laps, and I was just seeing if he could if he could hold off, and he did. He won by like, it wasn't even close. But it was exciting. I, I enjoyed it. I haven't watched NASCAR since then, so it's been 14 days. But today got me paying attention, and I just might have to watch again. Martinsville is tonight. Homestead is on Sunday. All those games, by the way, on our sister station, WIZM. I might have to watch again, because today... NASCAR did something that I don't think anybody expected, and that was ban Confederate flags at their races. If you've ever seen pictures or videos from uh, from the infield at a NASCAR race where everybody camps, I it, it, Confederate flags as far as the eye can see. As far as the eye can see. There's dozens, hundreds, thousands of them at all their races. NASCAR put out the statement today. The presence of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events runs contrary to our commitment to providing a welcoming an inclusive environment for all our fans, our competitors, and our industry. Bringing people together around a love of racing and the community that it creates is what makes our fans and sport special. The display of the Confederate flag will be prohibited from all NASCAR events and properties. I, I did not see that coming. And if you got a little free time and you're looking for time to kill, go to Twitter, look at the tweet, and read the replies. Because there's a lot of angry Southerners. <laughs> there's a lot of angry people about this. Because now they can't wave the Confederate flag at, at the race. I didn't see it coming. I didn't think NASCAR would do this. And they had some drivers make statements that were a little soft. And we didn't know. Because, because a couple days ago, we thought NASCAR might be moving in this direction. Everybody's making progress in 2020. And people are kind of done like beating around the bush. We're not, we're not really beating around the bush anymore. We're just making progress. And we're not really apologizing for it. 
And NASCAR put out that very clear statement this afternoon after some drivers kind of they kind of tossed and turned and didn't really answer the question directly. Brad Keselowski said this, I only salute one flag, that's America's. I recognize the flag might mean something different to different people, but that doesn't mean the United States of America to me. I'm not going to tell people to get rid of it, that's not my right either, but I certainly don't salute or respect it, or probably anybody else who feels the same way. But at the end of the day, it's not our call. And he is right, I pref- would have preferred him to take a little bit stronger of a stance. I want to share Dave Carney's comments on the subject from this morning, because I thought he killed it. Dave Carney, go off, my friend. So, for purposes of just you know, information for listeners that don't know. I've got deep, deep, deep family ties to the South. My grandfather is from Alabama. My grandmother from Texas. My other grandfather from Poplar Bluff, Missouri, a town of 700 where only Tyler Hansborough of note has ever come. The deepest South that you can get. Grant, I tell you like this, and I said it earlier, that flag was flown by an enemy insurgency. It has no place to ever be hung, flown, shown, or anything. And I would just use this. Knowing history is fine. We don't have to... um pat people on the back for being some of the worst humans that have ever lived. It would be like this for me. How do you think a Nazi flag would fly in Israel? How would that go over? Because that's history. They were part of that country, right? Lots of Jewish people lived in Germany. Do you think they'd be able to fly the Nazi flag in Israel? No. And that's how I feel about the Confederate flag. Like that. It's essentially the Nazi flag. And we know what it stands for. And it doesn't stand for history of like, oh, the wall of northern aggression against us, Paul Southerners. No, it stands for you wanted slavery. You wanted to demean and diminish people to a point where you had to pass a three-fifths compromise because they just weren't real humans. But you sure wanted the correct representation in the House, didn't you? The capitulation that we have made to the South since Reconstruction has been some of the sickening after effects of what that civil war was. And I said this earlier, Greg, because I got to let you off. One out of two American soldiers that have ever died, essentially, in a war for America died in the civil war. We really need to keep flying that flag. I mean, like, don't forget history, because if you forget, you're doomed to repeat it. But we sure don't need to propagate it and to showcase it in such a, a very warm and glowing way, like statues of Mr. Lee, who, by the way, one of our listeners knows exactly this. After the war, they said, well, at least... You know, Lee did. We shouldn't put up any statues of the Confederacy. It's only going to make things worse. He was right. Everybody else didn't listen. Go off, Dave Carney. You should check out his podcast at WKTYsports.com. That was from uh, this morning's show just after 8 o'clock if you want to catch our full conversation. NASCAR taking me by surprise today, not going to lie. I didn't expect them to get rid of the the, the Confederate flag. I expected to maybe take a stance and say, hey, we're against it. But I didn't expect them to ban it from all their events. Good for NASCAR. I might have to watch the race tonight. They're in Martinsville. That race is on our uh, on our sister station, WIZM, 92.3 FM, 1410 AM. And Dave Carney, pretty good southern accent, right? Let's talk same place, same time tomorrow here on the Wisco Sports Show. Talk to you then.